Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Sorry for taking so long, but it's December, and that means, well, I have to touch a subject that I haven't touched before, the Decemberists. The reason it took so long to make is because, credit where credit's due, Mike Duncan already has an episode on this in his Revolution series, so, you know, after listening to that episode like a bajillion times, I had to figure out a way how to add to that one, because a lot of people who listen to my show probably listen to Revolutions as well, so if I just repeat what he has said, then that wouldn't be as fun now, wouldn't it? The same way I think he'll kind of treat the Lenin stuff, at least I hope so, because that is why, you know, he's doing the factual stuff more, and I'm doing the ideological and political stuff um, in these whole Lenin series. If you haven't listened to them, go go do so now, because did my own revolution there. However, Decemberists are um, an interesting point in Russian history, and it's December again, and um, this is why I'd like to talk about them. Specifically because I also recently saw a movie made by today's uh, Russian cinema, which was given funding by the the Russian kind of state, because the Russian Ministry of Culture often finances Russian movies if they pass the script tests, and a lot of them are pure garbage. If you watch... uh, was it Russophiles Unite, the Russian movie podcast, if you, if you listen to that movie podcast, then you would know about such classics as the Caucasus Prisoner and the Adventures of Shurik and whatnot. And they have made a lot of sequels in recent years, also funded by the state government, and they're all trash. Uh, they're like literally scene-for-scene reshoots and it's torment to watch them, and it's just awful. Now, the thing is that they made... Um, a movie called The Union of Salvation, and what that is, well, I'll tell you just in a minute or so, but um, they made a movie about Decemberists recently, and that is why I wanted to talk about the representation of these Decemberists and how they're viewed. The Decemberists there, who were the first Russian sort of revolutionaries, they were very liberal, the people who fought Napoleon and they saw the officer corps, at least, they saw how the people in Western countries lived and they wanted to bring that back to their homelands. But that movie basically portrays them as champagne-drinking, hardcore alcoholics who want nothing but party and want to do trouble for trouble's sake. And the movie's central message is that if you oppose any kind of authority, then that's terrible and you should always respect it because, well, look at that. They were given everything by their motherland. Why are now they rebelling against the Tsar? And it kind of shifts away from any historicity and any factual basis of whatever, and it kind of stunned me. If you speak Russian and if you understand Russian, then I highly recommend watching Bad Comedian's take on the movie. He analyzes everything that there is in this movie. And he gives it a bunch of Mikhalkovs uh, for it. And, um, well, <laughs> Mikhalkov is his kind of anti-Oscar, because Mikhalkov used to be a really good movie director 
but since then he's turned to anti-vaccination bullshit and, uh, well, conspiracy theories about Bill Gates putting in computer chips and everyone to mind control them. And uh, basically it's kind of like lizard people level of conspiracy theories and fanatical obedience to whatever Putin says and, well, clear denial of anything. So he's gone mentally insane. Making movies for governmental cash, which are totally crap, and obviously a bunch of money of his movies, well, their financing has just been stolen, and he's just made a movie for, like, if he's been given three million rubles, he'll make a movie for 500,000 rubles and just pocket the rest. That's the study of most of the movies. Sadly, sadly, well, they didn't do that with The Union of Salation, which is... The Decemberists movie. In that movie, they went all out on costumes and everything, and even though they had, like, flashback and a flashback and a flashback, it was clearly seen that the government wanted this movie to be made, and they wanted this message about how the Decemberists were all crazy and a bit evil to play through. And that's why I wanted to talk about the myth of the Decemberists here, because that's a story that I think really needs to be told. So, let's talk about who the Decemberists were, what the myths of them were, and how it all operated. First off, I want to give you a quote from one of the Decemberists, Alexander Griboyedov. Quote, Who respects us, inspired bards, in a land where worth is measured according to the number of one's decorations and serfs? It is painful to be an ardent dreamer in the land of eternal frost. End quote. On November 19th, 1825, and yeah, I know they're called Decemberists because, well, November 19, by the old calendar, which now would be December. After a brief illness, Tsar Alexander died. Alexander I died. And yeah, I'll be using the old calendar for that because Russia hadn't shifted to the new one. It all happened in December, but shift everything 12 days forward for modern dates if you want to. Anyway, on November 19, 1825, after a brief illness, Tsar Alexander I died suddenly in Taganrog, Crimea, without leaving an heir to the throne. The news of Alexander's death arrived in Petersburg on November 27th in the early morning while the imperial family and the court attended mass to pray for his health. The ensuing interregnum, lasting until December 14th, 1825, proved decisive for Russia's future course. The imperial family's indecision, because of lack of the heir, magnified the confusion, and the country, quote, found itself in the strange predicament of having two self-denying emperors and no active ruler, end quote. The assumed heir Constantine, Alexander's younger brother, had basically contracted a uh, interesting semi-marriage to a Polish noblewoman, thus barring him from inheriting the throne. And, well, he didn't want to rule. So, years earlier, he had renounced his right to the throne in a secret document known only to a few members of the imperial family, and it wasn't really spread around, because he really didn't want to rule, because Alexander I didn't have any children. So, well, he renounced his rights to the throne and rights to inheritance, because he really loved this Polish noblewoman, but, yeah, no one knew about it. As Constantine's action had not been made public, his younger brother, Nicholas, insisted that all take the oath to Constantine this new czar, because he also didn't want to rule. Unlike many other occasions where claimants to the throne fight against each other for the right to rule, if you watched Game of Thrones, you know what I'm talking about, or, well, any real history for that matter. In this case, it was quite the opposite. It was two claimants, neither of which really wanted to rule. Though by many accounts, Nicholas knew that he was next in line to the throne and the rightful heir, a lot of people say he was, a lot of people say that didn't matter, because he honestly did not want to rule at some points, because he was a bit confusing, because Nicky I, well, he managed to be an even worse person than Nicky II, which is, uh, you know, unsurprising, really. His behavior really made it very obvious that he didn't want to rule. His awkward decision prolonged the confusion regarding the succession crisis, Spring exchange of letters and, and everything from the imperial family in Petersburg to Constantine in Warsaw, and despite the family's urgings, Constantine, well, he just said everyone to sod off, and he would not come home, and he couldn't be persuaded to quit his home and to come to capital to renounce his right to the throne publicly and formally. He just wanted everyone to leave him alone, because he was, well, at that point, Poland was a part of Russia, but an autonomous part, as it was given a constitution by Alexander I previously, just as Finland, so it was an autonomous state within the Russian sphere, sort of. 
kind of Russian Empire, but an autonomous territory, kind of like, you know, us in the Baltic provinces. And Constantine's weird behavior, because it's like, he didn't even want to renounce everything publicly, he just wanted to be left alone and not even get into this business, because, you know, what if he comes to the capital and they decide to crown him, and who knows what will happen then, huh? You know, being Tsar of Russia. Terrible, terrible business. Very deadly, too. This whole behavior provided the secret, even though it was uh, very much an open secret by that point, really. Uh, society members, which are known as the Sembrists, a pretense to overthrow the autocracy. They appealed to the imperial troops' well-known preference for Constantine to gain support, posing the problem as one of legitimacy. Constantine was the rightful heir, as he was being prevented from ascending the throne. They hoped to galvanize the troops to act while kind of eschewing the involvement of the masses. Um, we'll come to this later a bit. This kind of plays into the Soviet era, where the Decembrists were viewed in a more positive light, kind of, kind of with a naivete. They were seen as youthful officers trying to do the right thing, but they didn't get the support of the masses, and neither did they knew the theory of scientific Marxism. That is why they failed. Lenin wrote about them, quote, Oh, what revolutionaries! They didn't have any connection with the masses and with the proletariat. How could they form a revolution? It was doomed to fail from the start. End quote. However, they were viewed quite in a positive light. People who actually tried to improve Russia because their demands involved the abolition of serfdom and a constitution, whether it be republican or maybe a constitutional monarchy. We'll get to that a bit later. But are you in a more positive light, unlike right now, when, as I've seen from the movie, and as they've been seeing now, is like just a bunch of ragtag noblemen who are just, you know, doing crazy stuff for craziness sake, which is utterly and completely untrue. At any rate, had they proclaimed their true goals, like I mentioned, the abolition of serfdom, the foundation of government assuring the freedom, rights and equality of all men, because they really, really were influenced by French Revolution, they feared they would lose control of the rebellion. Above all, they wanted to prevent widespread bloodshed and popular revolt, because, like I said, they had seen the French Revolution. The uprising on December the 14th was perpetrated primarily by members of a secret society originating in 1816 as the Union of Salvation. Only military officers and noblemen were allowed in this union, and later they would expand, but at the beginning it was really a discussion club. The group's founders included Alexander and Nikita Muravyov, Prince Sergei Trubetskoy, Ivan Yakushin, and Matvey and Sergei Muravyov Apostol. Inspired by the ideas of the French Enlightenment, the French Revolution and Freemasonry, and their experiences in Western Europe during the campaigns against Napoleon, the members desired political and social reforms. Specific aims included the eradication of the autocratic system, because, you know, king and the country and the orthodoxy. No, seriously, do go listen to Mike Duncan's episode on this as well. He'll maybe do it in more detail. But uh, we're here to talk about the myths. They also wanted the reform of the courts and the emancipation of the serfs, though as a group they did not agree on the methods that would achieve these goals. The original group disbanded in 1817 and renamed itself the Union of Welfare, splitting into two sections in 1818. The Northern Society, located in St. Petersburg, the capital, was led by Nikita Moravyov, later aided by Yevgeny Obolensky and Trubetskoy, and the Southern Society, located in present-day Ukraine, was led by Colonel Pavel Pestel. The split occurred because of conflicting programs, and as much as the societies could be said to have them, since both sections did not have fully articulated ideas on how to achieve political change, nor did they have complete agreement on what form of government to put in place. For the most part, the Northern Society advocated gradual change and constitutional monarchy. The Southern group urged the military overthrow with murder of the Tsar that would then allow for the establishment of a republic. And they both had their own kind of sources. Pavel Pestil wrote his own document called the Constitution, while Nikita Muravyov wrote on the state of Russia, where they both kind of, you know, explained what they wanted to do. They both were against serfdom, even though Pavel Pestil was all about, you know, splitting up the lands of the Pomeshchiki, the people who owned the serfs, among the villages, the Mir, while Nikita Muravyov, although he also opposed serfdom, he kind of wanted to take away the land from the serf owners partially and give about two hectares of land for each peasant family. He really didn't work this thing out, but he died, well, a spoiler alert, he died way too early for that to take effect, and uh, he really didn't, didn't manage to work this stuff out in detail. 
However, I think, you know, if he had lived a bit longer, then it could have turned a bit, bit differently. These conspirators had long been planning a coup. An earlier strategy was to assassinate Alexander I while he reviewed his troops, and, you know, them being in the officer corps, yeah, it made it really easy for them to just, you know, shoot Alexander at their whims. The secret society's members could not agree on the appropriate timing, nor could they organize their actions. On hearing the news of Alexander's death, they decided to take advantage of the circumstances. It was time to act. The members met nightly at the apartment of the poet Kondraty Ryev, the facto leader of the Northern Society, to plan the coup. They appointed December 14th as the day of the revolt. Which is interesting enough, because I am recording on December 14th, which is quite cool. The day that the second oath of allegiance was to be taken, this time to Nicholas. Nikki the first. Oh, that's dude. They planned to gather troops from their barracks and march them onto Senate Square, where they would publicly refuse the oath and instead demand the, their rightful Tsar Constantine. They would also demand a constitution from the state council members, an imperial family, which would establish a constitutional monarchy or a republic. They hadn't really decided which they preferred. If all else failed, they would fight. And also, well, the Southern society, being a bit more radical... Yeah, they had these plans about how to basically murder everyone in the Tsar's family, because otherwise, as they thought, this whole thing just really wouldn't work out. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. In addition to the succession crisis, betrayals of both branches precipitated the revolutionary action independently of each other. Captain Maibroda's testimony led to the arrest of Peschel in Ukraine on the night of December 13, 1825, on the eve of the oath-swearing and subsequent uprising in Petersburg. A former Northern Society member, 2nd Lieutenant Yakov Rostovyev, told his colleagues of his betrayal of the Petersburg conspiracy. It was his confession that led them to enact their plot. Let me remind you, these groups were secret only in name. They formed during Alexander I's lifetime, and as Alexander really started out being a liberal reformist, and then really shifted his views to very orthodox, very conservative point of view, he personally even read their manifestos and their documents, and was informed on them, and told to basically crack down on these groups, but he responded that, I, too, was once obsessed with these foolish and wrong ideas. It is not my right to be harsh and strict on them. That's a quote from Alexander I. The conspirators mustered their forces and began arraying them on the Senate Square in the early morning of December 14th. A force of approximately 2,000 strong stood of the square, refusing to swear allegiance to Nicholas. By the way, interestingly enough, Pushkin, yeah, that Pushkin, was very supportive of this, and he would also be on the square, because he was basically a Decemberist himself. He supported them with his poetry and everything. But at the time, at the time, Pushkin was far away from Petersburg. But some of the conspirators confessed to being influenced by the Ode to Freedom that he wrote. After all this mess, by the way, after all this Decemberist thing, uh, Nicholas ordered Alexander Pushkin to present himself at his headquarters in Moscow, but after the resulting interview, the Tsar freed Pushkin to travel everywhere within the empire apart from St. Petersburg, because Pushkin was, well, a very liberal African-Russian, mind you. By the standards of the day, yes, Pushkin was black. Which is cool, because he's also the most influential uh, Russian author ever. Nikki also declared that in future he himself would be the poet's censor, but uh, Nikki had been less generous than he appeared. The actual censor was Count Beckendorf, the Tsar's chief of security, whose first step, mind you, was to call Pushkin to account for reading Boris Godunov, which he wrote, uh, to a group of friends without asking permission. Just an interesting side note. But yeah, Pushkin was black. Again, if you've listened to the Revolution series, specifically if you remember the Haitian Revolution by Mike Duncan, what was it called? Octurn or something? His granddad was black. So he wasn't white? 
and he would be considered black by his day, and he got often, you know, harassed in school for having a quote-unquote monkey face or whatever, even though he really, basically, his skin tone was kind of like a, a Georgian, probably, maybe. But, but yeah, he was considered black by the day. The same with Alexander Dumas, mind you, in France. It's a weird thing, really. In case of uh, anything, if you have a trivia question about Russia and about who wrote something or who did something, because he also, you know, he wrote paintings. And this is a specific translation, because in Russian you also write paintings. You, you don't paint them. You both write poems and you write paintings. Same thing. Um, in case of anything, always, always um, mention Pushkin, because, well, Pushkin will be 90% of the answer. That's how influential he is. Which is why it's quite interesting that he managed to live in the same, same time. At any rate, let's get back to the Decembrists, because, well, Pushkin's nice, but um, I want to get to the meat of the subject. The Decembrists and the troops waited for the appearance of their designated dictator. However, they arrived a bit late, because they arrived at noon, uh, where they thought the whole Senate would be there, and they would be doing this allegiance thing where they could arrest Nicholas. However, Nicholas had been a bit smarter and had called uh, the Senate meeting in the 7 in the morning already, so all the senators had just gone home. And the leader, the designator, the dictator, Trubetskoy, was basically nowhere to be seen. He, uh, well, by two things, he either slept at home and decided not to go, or he was just waiting uh, kind of far further away from the square and just did not arrive. And, you know, he was supposed to lead them into action and, and gather everyone uh, to, to do something. While loyal troops surrounded the rebels, crowds gathered to watch the spectacle, offering their support to the insurgents. Occasional shouts of hurrah for Constantine were heard. Trubetskoy did not appear, obviously. The Northern Society's inspiration, Ryelyev, went to find him and also did not return. The non-appearance of the revolt's appointed dictator and the disappearance of its charismatic prophet left the conspirators and troops uncertain of their course. Captain Alexander Yakubovich sallied back and forth from the side of the conspirators to the imperial forces, first urging the rebel colleagues to hold fast and then telling loyal generals that they were ready to give up. The eccentric poet and conspirator Wilhelm Huckelbecker recklessly brandished his pistol and was just totally drunk and waved around. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Count Miloradovich, Metropolitan Filaret, and Grand Prince Mikhail Pavlovich attempted to negotiate with the rebels. In each case, they were turned back with taunts, oaths, and random shouts. Miloradovich was wounded by a shot from the gun of the insurgent Pieter Kachowski and died later that day. The conspirator Ivan Pushin goaded Kuchelbecker to take a shot at the Grand Prince. Kuchelbecker's gun misfired. The crowd became more restless. Workmen from St. Isaac's Cathedral at the edge of the square began hurling wood at the loyal troops. With twilight approaching, Nicholas decided to attack. As the cavalry charged, their horses skidded across the square on the ice, accomplishing nothing. The Chevalier guards attacked next and experienced the same. Nicholas finally ordered the artillery to fire. Chaos ensured. The rebels broke ranks and many fled to avoid the grape shot. Ah yes, well, another thing learned from Napoleonic Wars. With a whiff of grape shot as they say. Within 24 hours, most conspirators were in custody. A second uprising occurred two weeks later, when the news of the events in Petersburg reached the south. Already aware of a traitor in their midst, after the incarceration of their leader, Pestel, the southern society began to strategize. When the authorities arrested Sergei Muravyov Apostol and Mikhail Bestushev Rumin, the remaining members of the southern society and United Slavs and allied secret society freed them 
and gathered reinforcements among the southern regiments to come to the aid of their northern colleagues. The revolt of the Chernigov troops, led by Muravyov Apostol, began on December 29th, with their march on the town of Vasilko. Playing on the religious appeal of the Orthodox liturgy, Muravyov Apostol composed a catechism specifically for the revolution, hoping to mobilize support and inspire his troops' devotion. On December 31st, Muravyov Apostol persuaded a local priest to read his text to the assembled troops to justify their actions towards the Tsar. While the rebels in the north played on the troop preference for Constantine over Nicholas, the southern insurrectionists manipulated religious symbols to gain support. If the northern revolt was distinguished by its static quality, then the southern revolt can be recognized by its aimless wandering in the search of manpower. Over the course of five days, the troops roamed the countryside from Vasilikov to Motovilovka, then to Belaya Tserkov and Zhitomir. Imperial troops surrounded them on January 3, 1826, at the village of Trilietsi. After a brief and bloody battle, the conspirators were routed and taken prisoner. The members of the Northern and Southern Societies and the United Slavs were reunited in Petersburg, in Peter Paul Fortress, where they were imprisoned during the investigation into the conspiracy. Nikki I personally questioned the conspirators and oversaw the judiciary process. He established an investigative commission which he directed throughout. The process dragged on until May 13, 1826, when the perpetrators were sentenced without trial or appeal. The five so-called leaders, Pestel, Rielev, Kashovsky, Muravyov Apostol, and Bezustev Ryumin, were sentenced to death by quartering. The other 120 men received sentences varying from demotion to the ranks to lifetime exile and penal servitude. Nicholas graciously commuted many sentences. The five leaders would be executed by hanging rather than quartering to avoid bloodshed. Oh, let me remind you, Nikki also in the Northern World part, yeah, he shot in the ice uh, where people retreated and about 126 people just drowned in the cold, cold waters of Neva. Hmm, fun times to be alive in. On July 13th, 1826, the sentences were carried out. In the middle of the night, the convicted Decembrists were gathered and stripped of their military uniforms, honors, and scabbards. Imperial officers burned the Decembrists' personal effects and broke their swords over their heads. The prisoners were issued convict clothes and taken inside to await the news of their colleagues' deaths. At dawn, the five Decembrist leaders were hanged on the ramparts of Peter Paul Fortress. Though scheduled for 3 a.m., the ceremony did not begin until 5.30 a.m. because of the scaffold's faulty construction. Because, you know, it's still Russia. The five fettered men were led out to the scaffold. Kachovsky walked alone first. Behind him were Rivyov Apostol, with Bestyuzev, then Rileyev, and Pestel. After the police captain read their sentence aloud, Rileyev called for his comrades to make their final obeisance to the Lord, and then they walked onto the scaffolding. The two executioners first placed nooses, and then white hoods on them. When the command was given, the board on which they stood was removed, and at that moment three bodies fell, their ropes having broken. Ryelyev, Muravyov, and Hakovsky, in varying stages of consciousness, were held back onto the scaffold and hanged again. When a doctor pronounced them dead at 6 a.m., they were removed, thrown into a cart, and disposed off in an unknown location in Golodai Island, an outlying island near Petersburg. The official news of the execution of the state criminals appeared in Severnaya Pchela, the northern bee, and other newspapers days later, about July 19th. And cleansing services, that's the orthodox thing where you kind of purge your dead from the sins, were held in Petersburg on Senate Square on July the 14th, and in Moscow in the Kremlin, July 19th. The remaining Decembrists, sentenced to Siberian exile, imprisonment, and or penal servitude, set off in the remaining days of the summer. Several wives petitioned Nicholas for permission to follow their husbands to Siberia. After much deliberation, he allowed a small number to go, as long as they left their children and renounced their former rank and rights. Eleven wives journeyed to Siberia in the years from 1826 to 1831. From 1838 to 1844, four sisters, two mothers, and one more wife arrived. The women, renowned in Russian literature as Dekabristki, literally Decemberist women, became famous for their self-sacrifice in Podvig, which is a moral feat, but Podvig is something, you know, awesome. It's hard to translate directly. The wives were the Decemberist remaining linked to Russian society, and supported their husbands both spiritually and materially. By the way, the Union of Salvation movie totally 
totally downplays their action and shows that the Decembrists just threw their families away and that their wives did not care about them at all, playing the fact that, well, obviously, no revolutionary can have any family values, which is very dumb. And, uh, well, though the Decembrists were physically isolated from society from the moment of their incarceration, they resurfaced in 1856, when Tsar Alexander II granted them amnesty and allowed the few survivors to return to Western Russia. And now, we're going to have a look at the whole narrative from various historian standpoints, and I'll be name-dropping a bunch of historians here. You don't need to read their works, it's just that they're important historians of the era, um, and, you know, I'll be trying to explain how they basically formed some narrative of their own, and how all these events formed weird symbolicism. You don't need to know uh, specifically all the names of historians. I'll mention them once, and then I'll just say a historian, because, well, if I always quote the name, which you probably don't know, because you don't have access to literature, then it wouldn't make much sense. It's just that I want to give them the credit where credit is due. However, this whole event spawned a lot of interesting narratives. First one, obviously, being the mythic one. In Victor Turner's terms, who is one of the historians that I've used for this episode, the Decembrists' outright refusal to take oath to the new Tsar enacted a, quote, a public overt breach, end quote, against the autocracy. The act played on the loyalties of the perpetrators. Would they pledge allegiance to the new Tsar? And the authorities, would they take arms against their fellow Russians? In the evening hours, while the rebels stood in the Senate Square in St. Petersburg, a phase of mounting crisis occurred, during which the authorities had to determine how to counteract the social and political breach, and the rebels had to decide how to force their hand. Neither side knew what to do, resulting in the derogatory appellation of the revolt as a quote-unquote standing revolution, Stajacia Revolucia. Since there was no escalation in the conspirators' military force because of their lack of organization and leadership, this phase was brief. The authorities' negotiations failed to achieve resolution. A chaotic atmosphere ensued, with the lower classes watching the standoff while hurling firewood at the imperial troops. December 14th coincided with the winter solstice at that time, when mummers entertained the crowds, quote, in a carnivalesque mixture of Christian and pagan symbolism, an atmosphere that certainly influenced the tone of the revolt. Though carnivalesque elements may have been inherent in the holiday, they also arose naturally from the new Tsar's ascension. René Girard's discussion of succession rights illuminates the deeper workings of the Decembrist uprising from an anthropological perspective. Girard examines installation rights in societies where violence often accompanies transfer of power. In these settings, the king must commit transgressions violating sacred laws to take on the role of the original victim, who is polluted. Recall the figure of Oedipus in Oedipus Rex. Because of the violation, the king is subject to ritualistic insults during the succession rites, which may involve a mock attack on his bodyguard or himself. Guard demonstrates the king's function as, quote, the catalyst who converts sterile, infectious violence into positive cultural values, end quote. Given the king's marginal status within society, he's not a member of society but above it, he can take on the sacrificial or surrogate victim's role to expel violence detrimental to the community. The Decembrist Revolt can be seen in this context as an archetype of ritual confrontation in enthronement rites. However, in their case, the ritual crossed from mock attack to genuine opposition with dire consequences. The confrontation's static quality underlines its ritualistic nature. The conspirators and their troops stood on the square for hours before being compelled to fight after the Tsarist artillery fired grape shot on them. The ritual aspects are also apparent in the authorities' reactions. They hesitated to quash the revolt, instead negotiating with the rebels. The Tsar's military and religious representatives tried to convince the conspirators to withdraw with appeals to higher forces of divide and human law. During their attempts to negotiate with the rebels, the Tsar's representatives, Grand Prince Michael and Metropolitan Filaret, were insulted and humiliated, and one of the greatest heroes of the era, Miloradovich, was wounded. Only then did Nicholas take action to efface the social breach's effect, ordering loyal troops to fire artillery at the lightly armed insurrectionists. Unlike ritual confrontations, the Decembrists directly challenged Nicholas's legitimacy and raised the possibility of regicide in two senses. 
The explicit question of whether the rightful, quote-unquote, ruler, Tsarevich Constantine, had been killed was the Decembrist pretense for revolt. Because no one had heard from him because he didn't give a fuck, he just was just sitting there, right? However, the implicit question of whether to kill the new Tsar or to overthrow the monarchy served as a primary impetus for the Decembrist action and strategy. In this case, Nicholas's behavior during the uprising confirmed his legitimacy, paralleling the legitimating process undergone by the ruler during installation rites performed by primitive communities. The revolt's perpetrators, sentenced to death, imprisonment, or exile, became marginalized, liminal figures in society's perception. Then that is uh, the whole Nikki affair, right? Immediately after December's sentencing, Nicholas forbade their mention in all public media. Contemporaries expected that Nicholas would annul the death penalty for the condemned Decembrists at the last minute as a result of the Empress's intercession on their behalf. When this expectation was not fulfilled, quote, even more conservative members of the elite were shocked, end quote. Out of fear of society's reaction to the punishment and future eruptions of opposition to the state, Nicholas strove to erase the conspirators' names and actions from history and their memory from the public consciousness. However, Nikki's decisions to ban public mentions of the Decembrists, to execute the five leaders in secret, and to exile the remaining rebels to Siberia. Ah, good old Siberia. Backfired, because they allowed legends to arise concerning the executed men and survivors. Among certain lead circles, the intelligentsia and the inhabitants of Siberia, the Decembrists gained a mythic status. The imperial prohibition on the Decembrist representations in paint and portraiture lasted throughout Nicholas's reign. The exceptions to the ban were the official narratives of the Decembrist Uprising, newspaper account first published in the St. Petersburg News, Sankt Peterburskie Vedomosti, and repeated elsewhere, references in imperial manifestos issuing regarding the revolt, sentencing, execution, and cleansing services, and Baron Modest Korf's history, the accession of Nicholas I. Um, well, written in 1857, No Kov's work was written in 1848 and was publicly issued only after Nicholas's death in Russian, English, and German. Prior to 1857, copies were available exclusively for the imperial family's private use. These official representations need to be evaluated to examine properly to, of the Decemberist mythic image. The Decemberist myth arose in the response to the official narratives of the uprising, the only publicly available information about the movement and its members. The Decembers and their sympathizers sought to counter the incomplete and skewed accounts by producing their own versions of the events and representations of their participants. Because here, you know, the act itself lasted for a short time and a lot of people died, but the myth remains upon till this day. And, as you might have noticed, it's the narratives that matter. There's a lot of fake news on Facebook, right? It's not a fact that matter these days, it's kind of like weirdness. Same in history. That's why I say there was never a golden age, really, because we all live in an age of fake news, but we've been living in an age of fake news since forever, except now the fake news are spread faster than ever. And, well, Google really kind of evaluates your search results, which makes you living in a bubble. Interesting thought, really. The newspaper account, after the uprising, minimized the rebellion's importance as a stand against the autocracy. Written by Dmitry Bludov, at Nikki's order, it sought to ally Russian and European fears about widespread insurrection, which would happen in 1848. Instead, it impunged the perpetrators and their supporters' characters, claiming the rebel battalions of the Moscow troops were joined by, quote, several people of vile appearance and frock coats who were madmen and insinuated that they were drunk. The article insisted the troops were the blind instrument of a few officers who took advantage of them. For this reason, after hearing that the rebel troops returned to their barracks, confessed their wrongdoing, and took the oath, Nicholas pardoned them and returned their standards. Only with the leaders discredited and their true goal suppressed could Nikki defuse the revolt's significance. The article never mentioned the rebels' demand for a constitution or their desire to abolish the autocracy and serve them. Months later, after the execution of the Decembrist leaders, a religious ceremony was held on the Senate Square to cleanse it of the blood. Crime, treason, and dishonor against the Tsar Batyushka, dear father Tsar, which the popular imagination perceived as an attempted patricide. The fact that Nicholas felt it necessary to purify the uprising setting highlights his extreme reaction to the crime and depths of his fear. The service contained two New Testament readings from Paul and Luke, 
The latter illustrates the Christ's role in cleansing and saving the faithful as long as they believed. This reading provided an allegory for Russia, believing in the Tsar. All will be cleansed of their sins, kept safe and protected from the quote-unquote raging revolt and the destruction of the entire Russian Tsardom. The manifesto Nicholas issued that they repeated the rhetoric and affirmed the fatherland is cleansed of the marks of the infection which it hid within itself for so many years. Nicholas celebrated his victory over the Decembrists, whom he called Mes Amis de Quartaux, with a liturgy on December the 14th every year of his reign. As Richard Wortman asserts, Nicholas constructed his own myth of the uprising, which glorified his and his supporters' valiant efforts to persuade the rebels to withdraw and then only when forced to resort to violence show their courage in suppressing the rebellion. Quote, Nicholas I used the Decembrist rebellion to refurbish the ruler's image as a conqueror and put it at the service of the autocracy's defense rather than its reformation. The insurrection made it possible to prevent conservatism as a radical break, for Nicholas defined the Decembrist movement as the embodiment of the Western rationalistic views that his brother Alexander had also had. In crushing the rebellion, he heroically began a new era, loyal to a tradition presumably demonstrated by the failure of the rebellion. End quote. Nicholas created the myth to legitimate his own right to rule, resting his claim on two facts. First, he demonstrated his capacity to rule the empire during the revolt. Secondly, he already produced a male heir, whom he offered to the troops as a sign of future dynastic stability. Thus, the validation of his powers and creation of his own mythic version of events began in the ceremonies occurring uh, on the day of the insurrection and continued until the end of his reign. Given this atmosphere, an alternative manifesto would not compete openly with the imperial myth. The manifesto and ritual cleansing of the square of the day of the Decembrist execution sought to affirm the Nicholas's version, the heroic triumph over evil. Quote, December 14th thus became another event with the Napoleonic Wars that united the armed forces of the holy cause of defending Russia. The Decembrist insurrection became a central defining moment for Nicholas's reign, invalidating his claims as emperor and charting his course as a conservative and reformer and also in shaping his future, mythology of rule. Nikki I renewed the image of conqueror, but now as a lone and embattled defender of monarchy against the per pernicious forces of revolution. Nikki's myth, however, was countered by the development of the Decembrist myth, a myth against the establishment, an anti-myth, challenging the autocracy's version of the truth and right to power. Nurtured in the 19th century by the previously mentioned poet Alexander Pushkin, the father of Russian literature, the political activist Alexander Herzen and the Decembrist families and sympathizers as well as the Decembrists themselves, the myth grew clandestinely through obscure references and official correspondence and word of mouth. Yet, in certain circles, it provided a powerful counterweight to official history. Though they still tore to throw the autocracy and social hierarchy to equalize citizens, in the end, the only status reversal that ensued was their own, from high to low. Because of their crime against the Tsar, the Decembrists became marginalized figures of society. As, well, previously mentioned historian Turner suggests, marginalized figures often take on great sacred power while being considered dangerous and polluting just like Navalny today. These mythic types come to symbolize the moral value of rebellion against oppressive rulers and are seen as representatives or expressions of universal human values, just like Navalny today. Though Nicholas' state rituals emphasized the Decembrists' polluting effect in other circles, they achieved the sacred status. The imperial mythology's most enduring representation was the previously mentioned The Ascension of Nicholas I, written by Baron Modest Korf. Nicholas's state secretary and issued in the limited first edition for the imperial family on December 14, 1848. Remember that year, 1848. It's a very important year. 23 years to the day of the Decemberist uprising. Korf wrote his book at the request of Tsarevich Alexander, who recognized that the first days of his father's reign must not, quote, fade or pass into history's disordered by exaggerated rumors. 
Alexander Nikolaevich, provided Nicholas's notes, but instructed Korf to exercise all caution against everything that could make his personal rule seem terrible. He also suggested that Nicholas correct the text and add any personal reminiscences and that were relevant to make it, quote, the most credible whole. The Tsarevich's suggestions exemplify that history is the victor's domain and shows how historical texts concretely demonstrate political power. Korf's text borders more on the propaganda than on history, and, you know, I won't be quoting that much because it's just silly. <sighs> Introducing the first public edition in 1857 after Nicholas's death, Korf proclaims he will give only the full truth, but also a valuable example to posterity. Quote, Emperor Nicholas does not need laudatory exclamations, but history requires truth and valiant examples. This purpose will reconcile the illustrious departed to the violation of his modesty's secret. Korf justifies the publication of the first day of Nicholas's reign to balance the news of Nicholas's last day. He exalts the recently departed Tsar for his virtues, portraying him as a good ruler and courageous man from his succession's first moment. Korf disclaims his medium, calling it a chronicle, letapis, rather than a history, historia. Quote, a chronicle ought to relate events and how they occurred. It is history's province to evaluate them and pronounce them upon definitive judgment. Pronouncing judgment is, however, specifically what Korf does. His work falls more precisely between the history and the portrait. Korf thus follows the genre described by Louis Martin. Quote, if history is made by actors, and if among these actors there is an agent through whom they receive being, life, and movement, the narrative of history can be only the narrative of this agent, and all he does, says, and thinks. His acts, words, and thoughts, and only they, define the absolute and universal space of history and of the narrative of history. The king must therefore be praised everywhere. In Korf's narrative, Nikki is the main actor who must be praised and justified. All others are marginalized. His being and wrath against gain validation through the Decembrist Revolt's suppression. The first Tsarevich asked Korf to write the book in 1848. Given the number of revolutionary uprisings at the time, it is kind of interesting if you think about it. Could this narrative originally been intended as a reminder of Nikki's past victory over revolution and consolidation? Or as a promise of future victory of the respecter of revolution? Huh. You know, it's weird. But I read a lot of fucking historical texts and... that a bit weird anyways. In any case, Nikki's success is twofold. The tale of the revolt's quashing led to the suppression of the story's other possible versions. Korf, our main source of the whole Decemberist uprising, which I am totally sure Mike Duncan also used, represents the conspirators in highly negative terms. And, again, remember the movie that I mentioned at the beginning. A handful of young madmen, acquainted neither with the demands of the empire, nor of the people's spirit and the true needs, insolently dreamed of the government's reorganization. Soon the thought of reform was also joined by the unholy thought of regicide. The Decembrist's portrayal as madmen echoes the newspaper accounts and many contemporary letters and memoirs of the Leeds Conservative members. The figures of the revolt have no say in this text. Their narratives are subsumed by the praise of the king. This is the myth. The myth is that uprisings are bad, and then there is always the counter-myth. I'm a philosopher by education, after all. I am not a historian. Oh, I'm a Soviet historian, but my prim primary education is in political philosophy. And when I see such myths being portrayed, and when you kind of look at this, then you can draw a lot of parallels to today. And, well, if you look at Putin, it is obvious why he wants to continue this narrative from the era of Nikki I. However, the Decembrists must not be forgotten. I mean, people still remember November the 5th, which was a, well, much less important and much less significant uprising in Great Britain. However, we cannot allow tyrants to rule us if we yearn to be free ourselves. That is the main study of the whole episode, I think, and the fact that the history can be twisted and turned in the ways that people need it to be. And the Soviet Union seriously learned from that. 
I hope that would never happen again, but um, with the next episode being on the aftermath of the Gorno-Karabakh War, coming very soon, because the political episodes are easier for me to make than the purely historical ones, because they involve a lot less research, because I know a lot of the stuff already. Yeah, it's not going to turn out that way. Because now, after the Decemberists, we have now another myth of Azerbaijan and Armenia and Russia and Turkey and everything. At any rate, thank you for listening for this episode. And thank you for being my patron, and uh, I'm sorry if I can't like read all of your names online, because that will take a lot lot more time. I think I'll do it on a Christmas episode. I'll actually go through all the people who support me on Patreon and read all their names and everything. Thank you for supporting me on Patreon, and thank you for being there. And, uh, well, and this is a surprise for you, a special thank you for Anna Germana, who is my editor. Please subscribe to her YouTube channel. She explains what Latvian culture is to foreigners, and she's an amazing person. And, uh, well, please, please do follow her. I wouldn't be here without her. She saved the show, whole show, and, well, I'm going to be setting something for Christmas for her as well. At any rate, thanks for supporting the show. I hope that this provided some insights that you didn't hear already from Mike Duncan's episode or anywhere else. And, well... See you next time. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.